Good morning. How you guys doing? Good? Uh, really good to be with you guys. I definitely picked the right Sunday, didn't I? The fall fried food bonanza. You guys are doing it right around here. I think that's my um, favorite church growth strategy that I've ever heard anybody doing. You guys know how to get things done around here. Um, but yes, I'm looking forward to enjoying that with you. My name is Caleb, and I, I have been in Adrian, uh, Michigan the past three years, and just recently moved to Sterling, Kansas, and I've kind of been helping put together a team of people, and we've been assessing where is the best place to plant a church here in central Kansas. And so actually have a great team. Tanner is a part of it. Sherry Boosmitz is a part of it as well. And so this team has been trying to analyze and research and discern through prayer. God, where are you leading us to plant a church? So we've got this down to about three places right now. And hopefully around Thanksgiving, we'll know the spot we're going to be going to. So please pray for us because this is really critical choosing and discerning where we believe God's leading us to plant. Because based on that, a lot of lives are going to be affected one way or the other. So please pray. We wouldn't just be choosing what's most convenient or easy for us, but where God is actually leading us to go. With me? So please pray for that over the next couple weeks. Uh, Speaking of prayer, would you pray with me? And we'll get into things this morning. Lord, it is such a good gift uh, every time to be able to come to you. I don't have to try to impress you with words or anything else or my behavior. I can just come to you as your child and ask for your help and for your favor that you already love and delight in the people in this room this morning. Father, you gave your life for them in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray, would you stir them up to really feel a joy and delight in who they are in you as your people and also an eagerness and passion for church planting. So would you stir that up in your people this morning, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So earlier this week, I walked into a cafe in Sterling, as I often do, and I'd been in there like two or three times. And so the barista said hello again and and asked me, what do I do for a living? And I kind of threw out the risky statement. I said, I'm a church planner. I help start new churches. And she looked at me with this kind of like wide-eyed, like, okay, that's weird. Um, and then just immediately turned and started making my coffee. So I was like, okay, into that conversation. So I ended up grabbing my coffee and I, I sat down, but she ended up coming back over a couple minutes later and we were able to have a, a really good conversation about God and her life and those things. But in the midst of that conversation, she brought out her hesitation more clearly. And she said, aren't there already enough churches? Like there's so many churches in this town. Why are you planting more churches? I think this is a common question that a lot of people have. A lot of different types of backgrounds can share this common confusion over church planting. For instance, for some people who don't know God, not interested in God, church planting can feel like trying to start a new blockbuster video store in a town, right? Like, that, that's so long. Are we still doing that model? Like, didn't that idea pat, like go a long time ago? What are you doing? That's so foolish. For others, they've been hurt by the church discouraged, disillusioned by what they've experienced. So for them, being a part of a local church, let alone planting a new church, is a colossal waste of time. And even for others who've grown up and really appreciate the church, Christians who are deeply embedded in it, for them, they see how church attendance is declining, how a lot of churches are struggling, or even their own church. So they hear about a church plant and they think, you're just stealing people from the shrinking pie of churchgoers. What do you do? You're hurting all the local churches. You're not helping this. So there can be a lot of confusion today. Why plant new churches? 
Why is this a good thing? So to explore this idea this morning, I, I want to just ask three questions. Three questions. First of all, why the church? Why the church? If we're going to be invested in starting new ones, we need to first be convinced about the purpose of the church in the first place, right? If the church is a good thing, then maybe we can get behind starting new ones. So what's the purpose and reason behind the local church in the first place? Secondly, why new churches? Why new churches? The heart of it. If we're convinced about why churches should exist in the first place, why start new ones? Why is this a good thing? And then lastly, what does it take? What does it take for a church like you to be a part of planting churches? This does not just happen accidentally. Some might say that it does in a church split. You suddenly have a church plant, but we mean healthy, intentional church planting. That does not happen accidentally. That requires a community and a people setting out to achieve that. How does it happen? Those are our three questions. So first of all, why the church? Why the local church? There's three metaphors that are most commonly used in Scripture to describe the church. These are really helpful. There's other metaphors that are used, but there's three that are the most common main metaphors that I think really shape and inform our understanding of what the church is and its purpose. So first of all, the church is described as a body, as a body. So Paul, Apostle Paul, wrote a lot of letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He describes the church as this physical body, head, eyes, ears, mouth, hands, feet, all these individual members that together make up one united body. So that even in the same way, the local church is not just a bunch of scattered individuals, but they're actually they're coming together to create something more, that they need one another. So this tells us, this metaphor, a great deal about how we're supposed to relate to one another within the local church. But why it says something about our unity, it doesn't tell us so much about the purpose of the church. So that brings us to our second metaphor, the body. Secondly, bride. Bride is our second metaphor. Again, in another letter Paul writes to Ephesians, he's encouraging husbands and wives to love and care for one another. And to do this, he compares that their love should be like Christ and Jesus, his love for the church, how he self-sacrificially gave his life for the church. That is how specifically husbands ought to love their wives. So he uses this image, this metaphor of a groom and a bride and the love there for how, how Christ loves the church as well. He, he flips it around suddenly. So not only is Christ in his love a metaphor for how husbands should love their wives, but also hear this, marriage itself was created to be a metaphor for Christ and his love, right? So the the shadow is marriage. The reality is Christ and his love. The, The real metaphor is marriage. The real thing is Christ and his bride, the church. So this tells us so much about God's affection and his desire for his people. What an amazing thing that God probably uses the most intimate, most faithful, most self-giving human relationship that we have to try to capture his intent towards his people. Isn't that amazing? That that this is how God wants us to see himself towards us as a groom towards his bride. But again, while this should amaze us about God's love for his people, it doesn't say so much about the purpose of the church. So it brings us to our third metaphor. Body, bride, and then thirdly, building. A building. 
And now for us, this can be a bit confusing again, because in the West, and especially in America, we can drive down the street and we can point out different buildings and say, this is like the First Baptist Church, or there's the, you know, the Methodist Church. And we're used to thinking of church as a physical building, but that's not what Paul means here. He's talking about a spiritual building. What do I mean? Look, look with me here. At 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is where we'll spend most of our time referencing back to this passage. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 through 11, Paul writes and describes the church. He says, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. So there are other metaphors, right, that are used in Scripture to describe the church. But the main one here, see, but you're also not just God's field, but God's building. And by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul does not mean that beneath every physical building there's Christ buried in a grave because Christ has been raised, right? So the church is based spiritually on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the foundation and reason for the church. So if it's not based on Jesus, it's not going to last. And there's this building that is established on Jesus and his work and what he's done. That's the church. But critically, we need to ask, okay, the church is a building. Stay with me. What kind of building is it? This tells us so much. What kind of building? Look at verse 16. Again, Paul writes, running towards this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and hear this, and you together are that temple. So God has made his people, not just to be any building, but to be a temple, a place where he dwells, his home, his residence, his dwelling place where he is and interacts with his people. This is what the local church is, and it has so much to tell us about the purpose of the church. But to really understand this, I think we need to step back because I think for a lot of people in our culture today, maybe you're with me on this, our idea of what a temple is might be more shaped by Indiana Jones, right, and the Temple of Doom than it might be by Scripture, right? So I just want to slow down and look at what's the story of the temple through Scripture? What's the story of temple through scriptures so that we can understand and really appreciate the significance of what it means for the local church to be a temple because it's so good. It's beautiful. So we're going to walk through the story. I say story intentionally because scripture here, the Bible, it, it is a group of letters and books written by many different authors, but it's not just a book of other books. It also has a single author a single mind that has been weaving the whole thing together. So you can see how different themes and ideas have been weaved together all the way through Scripture because there's one who's behind it all, God being the author. So we can step back and look at the story of temple through Scripture and see how God is developing this and where he's taking it. So I want to begin all the way in Genesis at the start. God creates a man and woman and he places them in a garden. 
this beautiful, lush garden. It's not just your average backyard, like tomato and potatoes kind of garden. This is a home for his people, right? And significantly, God is living with and dwelling among these people so they can enjoy him and know him and interact with him. So it's not just a garden, it's a garden temple. It's a garden temple. This tells us so much about our purpose as people, that we've been made to be in relationship with God, to interact, know, and enjoy, and delight in Him. This is the very core of what we're made for. So our work in living in the temple is to lift up and enjoy God. That's it. That's the heart of our purpose, is to know and delight in God. That's it. Living in this garden temple. But things are ruined when we begin to try to find fulfillment and other things besides God. When we think, I think this will actually satisfy the cravings I might have. And we call this sin. And so our relationship with God is separated. And even as our hearts had left God to try to find fulfillment elsewhere, so God removes us from his presence. He casts us out. And we were exiled from this garden temple. And it wasn't just, hear me, it wasn't just the loss of a home or where we were living. This is the loss of our purpose and our relationship with God. This is the beginning of all the troubles that we see in the world because what we are made for, we're no longer living in. To delight and have a relationship with God has been lost, so we're trying to find satisfaction and end up abusing and hurting people in the process. Our purpose has been lost. We've been separated from God. But God in this does not give up on his people. He doesn't just wash his hands of us. He's not done yet. He's a faithful God. So he sets in motion a rescue plan to bring his people back into relationship with himself. I love this. But see this, God's rescue plan doesn't come with angels from heaven descending down to earth or these trumpet blasts. God begins his rescue plan by calling a single man named Abraham and making him a promise. This is how God decides to rescue the world. By making a promise to one man. And he says, I will bless you and I will bless your descendants and the whole world through you so that they can be back in relationship with me. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to do this. And it doesn't happen right away though. It's not in one year Not in five years, ten years. It takes 20 years because there's a problem for Abraham. He doesn't have any kids. And it's really difficult to have descendants, right, if you don't have any children. That's a pretty good kind of a problem right there. But it doesn't happen right away. Not even close. He's just left waiting and waiting. And can you imagine if God had promised you something like that, a child, and you're excited, and a year goes by and it's not happened yet, how that feels? start to feel foolish and some shame. Maybe you misunderstood that. Five years? Ten years? Then it's just you're totally given up. But for Abraham, he's only halfway through the waiting of what God has for him. Twenty years. And God finally keeps his promise and gives Abraham one son. And that one son becomes two sons. And that two becomes twelve. And centuries later, those descendants become a nation in the land of Egypt. But they are in Slavery. This should immediately raise questions again for us. How did these people that God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless your descendants in the world through them, now centuries later, these descendants who were supposedly blessed are stuck in the land of Egypt in slavery. This tells me something about how God works in his promises towards us. 
when he says he's going to do something, I can't guarantee this from scripture, but it seems like often God makes that very promise look ridiculous. I'm going to do this, now I'm going to make you question it. Now I'm going to make you doubt it. If you know the stories in scripture, he does this with Joseph. Joseph, your, your brothers are going to bow down to you. And he ends up in Egypt. David, I'm going to make you a king. Then he sends him out to be running from King Saul for years. Jesus, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then sends him out into a desert to be tempted. When God declares something, promises something, he often makes it look ridiculous to test our hearts. And so God does in this way. Brings his people into Egypt. But he's not done. Because he wants to show his power and his glory. So through the most powerful nation in the earth at that time, Egypt, he humbles them through 12 plagues and frees his people, Israel, showing him his power and his glory. This is the God that I am, and I am your God. And he leads them out into a desert, and he begins to give them commands. Stay with me. Gives them commands about how to live holy, how to be pleasing to him, how to live in the right way. Why? Why is God telling them how they need to live and behave and be holy? Because he intends to live among them, dwell among them. So in the people, this nation, right in the middle, he has a tent built. They call it a tabernacle, a tabernacle. And he's living among them again in this tabernacle. There's a specific room called the Holy of Holies, and it's as wide as it is long as it is high. The Holy of Holies, a perfect cube. And it's in that place that he's most fully present. It's like the garden temple all over again. God living among his people. But there's still separation because there's this veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the people. So God is with his people but not fully available to his people yet. So God leads them out from the desert into this land that he gives them. And he commands one king named Solomon to build this massive temple so that he's no longer in a tent. He's in this lavish, massive building covered in gold. And again, in that same building, he has this holy of holies built, a perfect cube as wide as it is long, as it is, as it is high. And his presence is fully there among his people. And it looks like God's story of redeeming things is just picking up steam. It's growing faster and faster. It's now got this whole land. The people are doing well. There's this massive temple. We're on the right track. But just as in the garden, as they tried to find fulfillment in other things besides God, so the people of Israel, they forget God. And they chase after other gods, idols. It's so bad that they even bring in these gods and idols into the temple that God had made for himself. The the temple, the building that has his name, they start worshiping other gods in that, trying to find fulfillment in other ways. So just as God had cast out and exiled mankind from the garden, so he casts out and exiles his people from the land and has the temple destroyed. It's the lowest moment for them. All their hope and what they think God is doing is totally destroyed. But again, but again, so good. God does not give up on his people. He doesn't wash his hands of them. He stays with them because he's the faithful God. He didn't promise to Abraham in the first place that he was going to bless the world because Abraham was such a great guy or because humanity deserved it or because we were righteous. God promised to rescue humanity because he is righteous, because he is loving and kind, because he's faithful, 
So even when his people and when I start messing up and running away, I don't have to think, is, is God going to give up on me now? I probably have made way too many mistakes. This is the time that God gives up. But he hasn't been faithful to me or you in the first place because we deserved it. He's always been faithful to his promises because that's who he is. It's in his very nature to do that. He's the God that does not give up on sinners. That's who he is. So he brings them out of exile, back into the land, and they rebuild this temple. It's not as grand, it's not as beautiful or as lovely as it was before. And it leaves the people with this longing for when God's going to come and again fully keep his promise, bring his presence back among his people. And one day, one day, there's a prophet that walks into this rebuilt temple. And he begins to declare, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And this is crazy to the people because they're thinking, last time this temple was destroyed, it was almost the end of our entire community. It was our worst day. What do you mean destroy this temple? And secondly, it took us almost 46 years to rebuild it. And you think you're going to rebuild it in three days. You're clearly out of your mind. But this prophet, Jesus, wasn't talking about the physical temple building. He was talking about his own body. So he's saying, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. It says so much about Jesus and his understanding of himself. Saying, I am the place where God meets man. I am the meeting place between God and humanity. I am the real temple. So John even writes so beautifully. He says, Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. He took a tent to body and he tabernacled among us. And so Jesus, as he said, his body, his temple, his tabernacle was destroyed. He was crucified on a cross. And when he was breathing his last, when he was breathing his last breath on a cross, it says in Matthew, at that moment in the old temple, in the Holy of Holies, the veil was torn from top to bottom, showing that God's presence is no longer away and separated from humanity. It is now available to his people. This is what the death of Jesus accomplished. The veil being torn from top, God's movement down to us so that we can be in relationship with him again. So that sin that separated us in the garden, that sin that drove us away from God, that sin that creates shame and guilt in my life, that sin is atoned for and forgiven in the death of Jesus. And now there can be relationship between us and God again. This is what Jesus' death does. Creates God's presence to be available to his people again. And we look forward to where this culminates all the way at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation. John writes, and he describes in the last chapters, this city that's coming down from heaven to earth. And what, what kind of uh, object does he describe this city as? He says, it's as high as it is long as it is wide. This city is described as a perfect cube. And the only other time in Scripture that a cube is ever used is the Holy of Holies. So God's saying, I'm fully bringing my presence from heaven down to earth to live and be with mankind again. But beautifully, it's not a, it's not a garden anymore. It's a temple. It's a, it's a city, rather. So it's the fullness of humanity now living fully with God. This is where the story is going. We can't mess it up. God's going to achieve it. 
He's going to bring his presence now fully down among mankind again. This is what we're eager for and looking forward to. But between now and then, between looking back at Christ's death on the cross and looking forward to this coming kingdom that God will bring down, where is God's presence today? Where is his temple? Where is he making himself known to people? This is crucial. And between looking back and looking forward, where's the temple now? Critically, there's twofold. Twofold place that God reveals himself. First of all, we, the local church, the local church is his temple. We individually are his temple, rather. We individually are his temple. For those who trust in Christ, trust in Christ, not in their own works, not in their moral performance and able to be good enough to impress God and say, look, this is why you should accept me, God. This is why you should love me. Those who don't trust in themselves, but trust in Jesus and his death to make them right with God, God puts his spirit in those people so that their inner being becomes a home and a dwelling place for God. This is also why in Ephesians, Paul says that we would know in our inner being how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So you would actually experience and know this, what it's like to be in relationship with God. So that what's happening in you as a Christian is what people were longing for for ages. What they couldn't get into. This is the gift that's been given to you. So look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, how he hammers this home. He says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's such a good truth to sit in. When we think back where in the beginning, God created a garden, a temple, and he placed bodies in it. Now what God is doing is that he is taking bodies and he's putting his temple in them. See that? So he's taking us physical bodies. He's saying, I'm going to make you individually places where I come and live so you can again be back in relationship with me and joy and delight in me. So we are his temple individually. But not just that. Not just individually, but also collectively we are his body. You know, recently you guys were going through a sermon series in First Peter. And Peter talks about this very idea as Christians, as living stones. So they're not just a bunch of scattered individuals again. But God brings his people together and builds them like Legos, these living stones together so that all together we are his temple and his, his bride, his body. So the church collectively is his temple. See again how Paul says this so clearly. I want to read that passage we looked at earlier in 1 Corinthians three sixteen. He drives this home and Paul has been building to this idea, wanting their eyes to see how significant this is. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? This is the beauty and this is the scandal that God is not making himself known among the most lavish and wonderful buildings in the world. He's not living among the most impressive, famous people that we have. God decided that he wanted to place his presence among ragtag groups of believers all over the world. He said, I'm going to take these little local churches of sinners and people who have messed up in life and acknowledge me. I'm going to take these people and I'm going to bring them together and make them my home. This is the surprise and no one sees it coming. 
that it's all these ragtag little communities all over the world that God's revealing himself through. This is my temple. This is where I dwell. And this is what has so much to tell us about our purpose as the local church. If we are his temple, this has so much to tell us about our purpose. So let's see this. First of all, what's this have to say if we are his temple collectively as a local church? First of all, the local church, the local church is meant to revel in God's grace. It's meant to revel in and delight, enjoy God's grace. Back when Solomon had first built that massive, beautiful temple and before Christ came, they would have a celebration every year in the temple called the Feast of Tabernacles, where they were looking back during that time when God was in the tent in the tabernacle living among them. They celebrated that memory. And what they would do to celebrate this is they would make and build this massive, like, torch tower in the middle of the temple. It was on fire, just so much light. And they had this orchestra of Levites playing all this music, tambourines and cymbals playing. And then the people would have their own individual torches, and there was dancing. Everyone was just having a party right in the heart of the temple. It was said that by Jews in this day, said, if you have not been to this celebration, you've never seen joy in your life. There's a saying among the Jews. If you have not been to the Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sorry, you've never seen joy in your life. That's how good this party was. When Jesus shows up at this very celebration in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Which creates a question for us. If the local church has the true light of the world, not just some torch tower in the middle of a temple, if we have the true light of life, not just on the outside, but inwardly, we have the truth of Christ within us. If not just a building, but we are his temple individually and collectively, how much joy should we have? How much delight and thankfulness towards God that even in the midst of crazy, discouraging moments, we still have the truth that he's with us. This would give us so much joy so that I think people should say, if you've not been to the local church, you've never seen joy in your life. That's what people's response should be. This people know how to celebrate. Man, they'll eat some fried food with you and they will party it up, right? They know how to enjoy life and God. Does the local church have this reputation? We should. We have so much reason to be glad. And also, is this not our purpose from the very beginning when God made us and placed us in the garden? He said, I want you to enjoy and delight and love me. Revel in my goodness. So he's just bringing us back into that. The very delight you and I are made for. That's what we have here in the local church. Secondly, secondly, the local church is meant to reveal, not just revel in, but reveal God's grace. Reveal God's grace. Again, in the temple, there would be a sacrifice every morning and every evening. And people would come up to the temple to pray and make the requests known to God during this sacrifice. They believed this was the time when God would be able to hear them. And they would not only be able to celebrate God's grace, but they would be able to find grace from God in those moments. But you know that the church, we don't make sacrifices every week. We look back to the one great sacrifice that's already happened in the death of Jesus. So I'm not having to look for an animal sacrifice or surely not my own behavior and me being good enough as a person so that God would hear me. Like here God's my resume and this is why I've been good enough lately so that I can, I can be heard by you, so that you'll love me. 
That's not how we interact with God. We look back to and say, Jesus, you are the reason why I'm made right with God. You're the reason why I'm acceptable now. You're the reason why I'm made holy. You're the reason why I'm made righteous. You're the reason why I can speak with God in the first place because I trust you and you've made me right with him. So he's our one sacrifice. This drastically affects our heart motivations and the way we do life. So good. If I know that I'm already accepted and loved by God because of Jesus and not because of myself, that frees me from trying to prove myself all the time. I don't have to look towards my work or preaching to be the place that I find my value, right? I already know that I have that in God, so it frees you from being a slave to your work. You can actually see it instead as a way that God's using you to bless the world. In your relationship with your spouse, you don't need them to give you your sense of significance. You know who you are in Christ. The way you love your neighbors and your community, you have an eagerness to now pour out because there's been an overflow in you. You already have been forgiven. You're free to forgive others. You already have been loved. You're now free to love others. So the local church, more than any other community, should be expressing and revealing God's grace. We have this unique resource in abundance. So if the local church really is grounded in the gospel and in God's grace, it should drastically affect the way we see ourselves and one another and our relationships our everyday life should look differently. We are revealing God's grace. That's what he designed us for. Right? That Park City would say, man, New Anthem, that's a church that knows how to love people. They reveal God's grace. That's your purpose. So why the local church? We're supposed to revel in and reveal God's grace. But secondly here, much more quickly, <laughs> we're going to go through why new churches. If we can be convinced that the church is a good gift that God is revealing himself through, why should we start new ones? Why new ones? Well, first of all, first of all, the church planting is one of the best ways to make new disciples. I think I put it differently on here. What do we have? Church planting is one of the best ways to reach new people. Reach new people. So a church plant from the very get-go you're trying to reach new people. I'm sure you've experienced this. You don't have a lot of people coming. So in the first years when you're meeting, you're trying to reach out. You're outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. You want to be aware of the people around you and your work in other places who might benefit from being a part of the local church. You want to reach out with the gospel. So because of this outward mindedness, the local church, a church plant tends to reach new people, new generations, new residents to a town, new people groups better at doing this. Uh, Tim Keller, who has a great article called Why Plant Churches. Uh, it's a really helpful resource that I'm getting some of this from. He, he says this about new church plants. Den- dozens of denominational studies have confirmed that the average new church gains most of its new members, 60 to 80% from the ranks of people who are not attending any worshiping body. While churches over 10 to 15 years of age gain 80 to 90% of new members by transfer from other congregations. This means that the average new congregation will bring six to eight times more people into the life of the body of Christ than an older congregation of the same size. So again, if you are delighting in Christ, if you're finding a fullness in Him and you want other people to discover that, you'll feel an eagerness for planting new churches. I don't mean that other congregations and older groups are not reaching new people. I don't mean that at all. But I mean that there's something about church plants and their outward mindedness that end up being more fruitful in reaching new people. 
somehow ever can wonder, yeah, but still, this, doesn't this take from the shrinking pie of churchgoers? It's still not right. Well, secondly, I want you to see church planting is one of the best ways to revitalize existing churches. This is interesting. It's one of the best ways to revitalize existing churches. The reason why is because church plants can tend to operate as almost a research and development arm for the whole body of Christ. Church plants have very little to lose. They want to try new things, experiment new ideas. When I was in Adrian, we tried some crazy, strange things that frankly did not work out, right? But this is it's the gift of a local church. I mean, a church plant that it can try and experiment, research and develop, and the whole body of Christ benefits from those new ideas that actually work, right? So new ideas come. Not just that, but new leaders. And often in an established church, many of the leadership positions are already taken up. People have been established there for a long time. But you know, as a church plant, I mean, you're just eager for people to serve. You're growing. So there's leadership positions that are opening. So it's a great place for people to come in and learn. And it's not just a blessing to the local church. Those people take their skills out into the marketplace and can serve the wider body and community with their leadership skills. So it develops new leaders. Thirdly, it can be an evangelistic feeder for other churches. What I mean is, again, church plants can be better at reaching new people. But sometimes church plants are just more tumultuous, crazy, moving, going through different phases. So people find Christ in a new church plant, but they realize actually this other church might be closer to where I live. It might make me a more effective disciple maker, so I'm going to go into this other church. So while they discover Christ in a church plant, they might go and grow elsewhere. So all the boats rise when the tide comes in, right? That's what it should be like with a church plant. All benefit. All benefit with this. So it reaches new people and it revitalizes existing churches. The third question here is, what does it take? What does it take? First of all, keep in view the importance of church planting. Love that you're doing that even here. You let me have the opportunity to come and preach and talk about this. Keep this in your sights. Don't lose this. Focus on the beauty of church planting. Give yourselves to it. It's so easy to get focused on other things that are happening, but set your eyes on it and don't get distracted. Keep in view the importance of church planting. You already have that. Hold on to it. Secondly, keep investing in church planting. I know that you as a congregation, you're investing in ARC, Association of Related Churches, and also the FEC, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. You don't need to remember those names, but both of those groups are very passionate about planting churches and very active in that. So you are already investing financially in these kinds of endeavors. It's so good. Thank you for doing that. But not just financially, but also investing leaders and people, relational capital in, in, in new church plants. So identifying people in your church like, man, you would be fantastic at helping lead a new church plant or being a part of one. Send people out, even as the church in Acts sent out Paul and Barnabas. Send out your leaders. Thirdly, lastly here, keep praying. Keep praying. If you know Christ and the value of the kingdom, you recognize that we have an enemy. Our battle is not against just flesh and blood. So we have to enter, and I've felt this a lot the last two months where I've been up in Adrian, can just sense this is a spiritual fight. This is a battle where we have an enemy that does not want to see church planting move forward or succeed. So please pray, not just for you yourselves as a church plant, but for church planting endeavors here in central Kansas, that God would move in these small towns, stir up new churches and bless these communities that he would be glorified. Let your heart keep after that. Keep praying. Keep praying. 
Now, for some of you, there might even be a curiosity, not just about the local church collectively as a temple, but you yourself, that that's something that you don't know. So I want to pray just right now just to bless you guys as a church, but also if you're here wondering, like, man, I am curious about how do I trust in Christ so that he makes his home in me. I just want you to pray and follow me in this too. Lord, your faithfulness really is overwhelming. How quickly we, we forget you, how quickly we try to find f- fulfillment in other things. But Father, thank you for holding us to yourself, for continuing to track us down. And Lord, that you would use this local church new anthem to really be a blessing to Park City, to other small towns in the area, to be passionate about church planning. Bless this church with that heart. Keep them focused on it, Lord. And for people in this room, Lord, who are not your home yet, who have not trusted in you, Christ, Lord, you help them to slow down and identify those places in their life that they're looking to, to really find satisfaction. And Lord, right now you'd help them yield and say, I don't want to trust in that for my purpose. I want to trust in you, Christ. You're the reason why I'm made right with God. I trust you, Christ, not myself, not myself. Lord, you'd honor your word and come and make your presence known to these people. Just that life you give us in our inner being, that peace you give us in our inner being, you are what we're made for. We delight in you, God. I thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.